Reading us from the book of Genesis once again, if you'd like to turn there, Genesis chapter 12. We'll be picking up in verse 4. The word of God says, So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you once again for the Lord's day and the opportunity to hear from your word. We thank you that these scriptures are a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We pray that this word would shine brightly this morning so that we will be able to see and know where we are to go. In Christ's name we are to pray. Amen. Uh, so as you can tell, I, I'm a little banged up. I was out uh, exercising, out for a run on Wednesday, and I came across a house that I have been watching for a long time that they're doing construction on. So uh, I was gawking at the home, <clears throat> and I stepped on the uh, edge of the road, and there was like a four-inch drop there, and I came down all on one leg that you know, rolled off of the side of the edge of the road. And uh, so I'm a little beat up. I got some road rash on this leg and a, and a blown up ankle on this side, but I'm altogether fine and I'm well on my way to healing. So it's really no big scene at all. But tis the way of my life. We mentioned this, uh, Adrienne uh, mentioned it to my mom. because <clears throat> I wasn't able to walk on it the next day at all. And it said, well, he was looking at a house and my mom replies, well, that's what he gets for staring. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, so it's buck up time in our house. Just get over yourself and move on. So let's do it together. Um, this morning, uh, uh, as we've been witnessing so far through the life of Abram, Abram's faith is maturing. And we're going to see that this morning as you've heard read for you now as he takes the action to move forward in his life. But I really want you to realize uh, the significance of Abram's faith that needs to mature. Because again, that's where we find ourselves in our own lives. And uh, Abram as well. We can look back and think of the heroes of the faith and this kind of concept and idolize individuals or seek to emulate them. And in some manner, indeed, we could be mentored, we could be discipled by the saints in the text of Holy Scripture. We're commended to be so. But we must take that as we are like them and they are like us together in the faith. So we learn from them. We don't idolize so that we too can recognize we're both in need as human beings. The saints of the Old Testament and the New Testament and ourselves as well in this age. We're all in need of one. and That is the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone can give us the faith that we so need and nourish that faith 
along. And so we must see that in the developments of Abram. Because again, at the beginning as we look at Abram, he has been presented to us as slow to believe. But God's promise is producing endurance. Again, I wish you to receive that. To recognize, from where will my endurance come? When you're experiencing a faith type of setback, you will, you have, I will, I do. To whom shall we go? Never can it be said, and I wish you to see this in the life of Abram, and you'll see it again and again and again if I can be helpful and point it out to you. For never can it be said in your Christian experience or in mine, or in Abram's, or in Peter's, if you could think of another character that we see witness in the growing and the maturing of his faith. Never can it be said that endurance produces promise. Keep that in your mind and track that with me. When you're thinking, what does give longevity to the faith? What will empower my struggling faith? What will strengthen me to move and press on in endurance when I feel fragile in the faith? Never let it be said that endurance will produce promise. There is a critical distinction in every text you're reading in the Holy Scriptures. A critical distinction that you, the people of Christ, need to keep in your mind between God's law, which requires and demands, and God's promise, which lavishly provides. Again, and we see that in the text of Genesis 12, and we'll look in just a few moments, but as we considered last week in verses 1 through 3, Abram is now mobilized to leave his father's house and journey toward the land that God will show him. But he's not doing so in endurance of performance, but he is doing so by resting upon promise. It is always and only that is, we trust and rely upon God's promises that he will within us produce obedience to that which he has commanded. To do it otherwise is to frustrate and to suffocate our faith. To think that we can pursue command in hopes of achieving promise would extinguish our faith. There are many who deconstruct from the faith. And much of that is because they confused God's law with God's gospel. These two must forever be separated in our minds. The 18th century Scottish minister I've referenced this a number of times, but it awakens my own soul, it clarifies my own mind when I struggle and strive and feel fragile in the faith, when it's brittle and weak and not robust and ready. 
I think of this often as, again, we see it within the life of Abram, time and time again. I commend it to you. It's simple and you've heard it, but I wish you to hear it afresh. Pastor Ralph Erskine, famously describing the distinction between what God commands in his law and what he provides us in his gospel, saying this, quote, a rigid matter was the law. Demanding brick, as we read for you just a moment ago, the striving and struggling faith of the Israelites in the time of Egyptian captivity. A rigid matter was the law, demanding brick, denying straw. Again, how far will performance get you in the faith? Pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and pursuing God's will. Taking the bull by the horns. According to Pastor Erskine, very little. Then he adds this, but when with gospel tongue it sings. Do you see? Do you see? One, one sings the word of the Lord, sings with gospel tongue. It bids me to fly and gives me wings. It is always this way, beloved. That as God commands, He must provide if we are to prevail in obedience. It is only by promise that we will be empowered to obey. And it is by God's enabling, and I mean enabling, sometimes we can think of grace as this ephemeral thing then the presence of the Spirit well within our lives, empowering and enabling what moves you to obedience, to maturing faith in the face of fragility of your faith. It is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is by God's enabling grace received and rested upon through gospel promise that transforms Abram's mere migration from Ur to Haran and now to leave his father's house and head toward Canaan or the land that God will show him. It is grace that transforms his mere migration into a faith-filled pilgrimage. I'll read for you a text and if you wish to jot it down, you can look at it later. You don't need to turn there. But I wish for you to see this as we think of where Abram began in faith's fragility. Faith first given must undergo trial on its way toward maturity. So it is with you, so it is with Abram. But what transforms faith's fragility into mobilization and obedience? It is the grace of of God. 
writer of Hebrews, just so we can have this in our mind as we consider Abram for the next few moments, speaks of it this way on Abram's journey. Hebrews 11, a text again you're very familiar with, but I'll read for you. He says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Again, you think, but what mobilized him? How did he go on this faith-filled endurance, this journey, this pilgrimage? Verse 10 gives us some indication here in the text of Hebrews 11. He says, for he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. You see, Abram was moved on to a life of faith-filled pilgrimage and obedience, not by simple striving, but by grace's provision, that is, by promise. Why does it matter that we get it right? That we make such a fine distinction about the Lord commanding Abram to go and then how he went. Why do we need to know how he went? Because, again, we see in Abram a mirror for our own faith. How will your faith be mobilized to obedience? Stricter command? Or by gospel promise? Calvin speaks of it this way, reminding us, saying, quote, God designed in Abram as in a mirror to make it evident whence and in what manner his church should arise. We see in Abram, the man of faith, our journey of faith. We'll see this as we consider, if you're there in the text, look with me at verse 4 and 5. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. I want you to notice something very carefully because we have to consider some aspects to this journey as well. Right at the very outset as the caravan is getting started. Notice, so Abram went, he is now leaving, Terah has died, and Abram is setting out by faith-filled pilgrimage to a land that God will show him. Just as the Lord had told him. So we're indicated by Moses that Abram now is acting in obedient faith. But you notice, and Lot went with him. Abram, we are told, was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, 
and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Now again, I, 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 I encourage you along as you look at Abram's life of faith that indeed I do sense here in the text that as Moses indicates, Abram left as the Lord had told him. Meaning Abram is indeed without a doubt moving in obedience to God's command by gospel promise. I will make of you, Abram, a great nation. I will give you a land. And I will bless those who bless you. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abram is moving by gospel promise into a life of pilgrimage and obedience. And yet it also appears that Lot desires to go with him. Why do I highlight that? Well, you remember because the original command, leave your father's house. Lot belongs to his father's house. And the text is clear to say that Lot went with him. And we need to be fair to that to say, again, at this point, Lot is not a child. He is not a young one that needs to be left behind. He is a, a man that indeed can stand at his own two feet, but he wants to go, apparently, with Abram and the caravan of people that he has acquired. And Abram does not deny him the option to venture out with him on this faith-filled journey. By the time we progress through the text and we see again in verse 4 at the end, or at the beginning of verse 5, excuse me, Abram seems to take him. Lot wants to go, and Abram decides he can. What do we make of this? Should Abram have left Lot, that is his father's house, and told Lot he can't come? Well, it depends on who you read. There seems to be an intended somewhat ambiguity here within the text. I don't think of Abram's faith, but perhaps of the exercise of wisdom in allowing Lot to come. It doesn't seem to be here indicated within the text an error of obedience, but perhaps an error in judgment. I think it was, if I remember correctly, I think it was Spurgeon uh, who in this area on his preaching indicates this is an example of, of a halfway kind of obedient act on Abram's part, and he exhorts the church unto full obedience in contrast to this, I'm leaving obedient, I'm allowing Lot, the father's house, to come. He cites later how Lot turns out to kind of be a little bit of a thorn in the side and indicates it was, it was a lack of obedience, I don't know. I'll leave that to your discretion to weigh out. But as we see here, it seems to be, perhaps as we know the story develops, maybe an error in judgment. Again, if I were to summarize, I think Abram is acting in obedience. I think he's just allowing Lot to come who desires to share in it. And to understand, maybe Lot knows that to be a friend of Abram's is to experience a tremendous blessing. God indeed did promise, those who bless you, I will bless. If Lot was to make a judgment call in his own providence, he probably thought, I want in on the caravan. I want to be with Abram. Now, as we approach the land and Abram now leaving as a caravan in a faith-filled pilgrimage, what at one time was mere migration, Ur to Haran, now Haran to the land that I will show you, which is Canaan, where he goes. Abram's faith has grown by gospel promise to be a 
faith-filled pilgrimage. However, there seems to be problems right off the bat. Look with me in the text, if you will. Once again, we'll see verse 5, and then we'll look at verse 6 just for a moment. And Lot, uh, and Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son. And all their possessions, all they gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, so at the time of Abram's arrival, the Canaanites were in the land. Now there are three things that stand out here about Abram's faith-filled journey that I think you'll experience in your own walk of faith. I think that you have experienced in your own walk of faith and will recur throughout our journey of faith in this pilgrim's journey as we await the return of Christ. Life in this age. Again, there's a problem immediately with the land that Abram has appeared in. I'll show you those three things that stand out. Number one, you notice in the text, there's a notation in verse six, he passed through the land and where he, uh, where he landed is the place at Shechem. This is noteworthy because the location of Shechem. For the purposes of what Moses is trying to get across here, what we recognize geographically, or if we looked at a, typo, a typographical map, we'd find that Shechem is in the heart of Canaan. Abram, at this point in time, leaving Haran, has traveled yet another 100 to 150 miles. That's a long ways on foot. And he has done so with all of his servants and all in his household and all of his animals and with Lot and all that he is bringing with him as well. And they have traveled roughly since they left Ur to uh, Haran was about 500 to 550 and then there's another 100 to 150, again, not exactly onto the scale of now finally arriving in the center of Canaan. He is at Shechem. At this point, what we're noted, again, within the text is that the Canaanites are in the land. Abram's journey has brought him directly into the heart of a territorial conflict. Now you think of that in parallelism to your own walk at times. Perhaps you have some manner of success in your life and you're invigorated in your faith. Maybe putting sin away from you and you're feeling invigorated and growing and nurtured in your faith. Maybe you feel, as we could say, the wind is at your back. It's filling up your sails and your providence is kind. And yet how often it is that that is so very short-lived. And yet another trial appears, or yet another test upon our faith appears. So it is with Abram. Abram, invigorated by gospel promise, sets out on a faith-filled journey, and he arrives dead center of Canaan. A territorial conflict that will last throughout Israel's redemptive history. So it is, again, as a mirror in our own life. You think of the, um, at least it, it rung a bell for me, thinking of 
uh, Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace. You've sang it numerous times without a doubt throughout your lifetime and hopefully numerous times more. But you think of grace and a faith-filled journey for yourself and yet as you rehearse God's work often in your life, so it is recorded in Newton's hymn as we see also with Abram, through many dangers, toils, and snares. And you'll repeat again and again throughout the course of your life, I've already come. And as you look back on those events, those dangers, those toils, and those everyday ordinary sinful snares, twas grace that brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. So it is that promise produces endurance. What would Abram's thought be? And I was thinking a few moments ago when we sang together, Lord, help my unbelief. Imagine arriving at the land and the place. You've traveled 100, 150 miles only to land in the dead center of a Canaanite conflict. Faith is invigorated by promise. Hardship through endurance. Difficult land traversed. Where is my promise? Perhaps as Abram looks out through Shechem, he also would pray, Lord, help my unbelief. The territorial conflict is expressed again further in the text at the mentioning that Moses captures us by. As he says within the end of verse 6, just to put again a context to it, Abram's in Shechem, the center of Canaan. And yes, Moses writes, and at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. What does that mean? How would we read it to go, <gasps> they are? Well, again, you realize the Canaanites are those who are in direct opposition to God's promises. Direct opposition. They're the contradiction to the promise. God has so promised to Abram this land and this offspring and this nation and this blessing. And, and by the way, he's in Shechem in the center. And oh, I must tell you, the Canaanites, they're there as well. How do I make sense of them? Well, remember, Canaan is the cursed son of Noah. We looked at this like two years ago by now in our study of Genesis. But, but you recall, they are the, he is the cursed son of Noah. He and his people are the seed or the offspring of the serpent. You remember as we've, we beat this horse until it has died a thousand times, Abram is the son of Shechem. It is Abram and his offspring who are the offspring of the woman. It is through them that Christ will come. Abram and his offspring are members of the promise. So what you have by knowing that the Canaanites are in the land, you have a promise of God and you have an enemy to that promise. 
So it is often in our journey of faith. We possess promise, but the fragility of our faith sees enemies all around. So we sing, so we gather, so we preach, so we feast. Lord, help and empower my unbelief. For a little more clarity on the Canaanites and their manifestation within the land throughout their time of centuries within the land, you could go to places in Leviticus and you could go into Deuteronomy and you could see their evil practices. Abram here is a, is a son of God, he who possesses the promise to own this land. And as he looks out and sees the Canaanites in it, you can consider their practices over centuries of child sacrifice, idolatry, witchcraft, and sorcery. In Deuteronomy 18, God tells Israel to ensure that when they go into the land, that they, that they perform absolutely none of these behaviors of those who are in the land. And he lists those as the behaviors of those who within that land are rebellious against God's goodness. So it is clear upon arriving that Abram realizes he is not only in a territorial and a physical conflict to come, he is also in a spiritual conflict between himself and the promise and the offspring of the serpent. Thirdly, this sense of the spirituality of the conflict emerges where there is one more notation within the text that we need to be brief, but we need to consider. And that is thirdly, you see there within the text, uh, he is at the place of Shechem. And then it clarifies more narrowly where he arrives. It is uh, the Oak of Moreh. Again, this clarifies not only the physical, territorial conflict and dispute, but also the spiritual nature of it. The Oak of Mora is an ancient place of Canaanite shrines. Again, you might not get that specifically here within this text by, by looking it up and checking out the history of the location and so forth. We realize that's the notation here within the text. It is a location of Canaanite shrines. A reminder to Abram of the spiritual conflict that stands in the establishment and fulfillment of God's promises. One author mentions it this way, describing the Oak of Mora as a historical site, saying, quote, pagans worshiped fertility deities under such trees. Again, it's not a single oak tree. You're looking at some sort of grove, some sort of location where there's the Oak of Mora. He goes on to say, with its lofty top in the heavens, it could be considered an access between heaven and earth. It was considered a place for divine revelations. Again, at this point, what could Abram be thinking in his faith-filled journey? At one moment, you recall, if we, if we pair uh, Stephen's speech in Acts and we come back to the record here in Genesis 12 and we piece them together, it's an interesting portrait of Abram and his faith, isn't it? If he heard while he was in Ur, indeed, that as Stephen says, that God appeared to him and told him to leave his father's house. A and in some manner of believing, yet hesitant indeed, 
he moves over into Ur, or from Ur into Haran. Waiting, I don't know what period, how many handful of years, somewhere in there. Maybe he was 70 at the time, I don't know, I guess. By the time he leaves, he's 75. Terah passes away. He lays hold of the promise, and he's mobilized in faith. Again, I pair it to you in parallelism to say how often our faith will rise. And yet, even when it rises, it is fragile. Because often it rises because of circumstance. So lightly anchored, oftentimes, is our faith. So Abram then, by faith, sets out, indeed, on faith-filled journey. No longer a mere migration from Ur to Haran, or Haran now to the land that he was shown. It is a faith-filled journey to lay hold of the land that God has promised. And yet now here he is in the center of a territorial, physical, and indeed spiritual conflict. Has that ever happened within your own experience? A robust moment of a faith that has risen out of the ash, nearly feeling like a spiritual phoenix. I don't know, and, and, and a tire on your car goes flat. Now you barely believe in God. It fears the fragility of one's faith due to such circumstances. How weak indeed. That's why, beloved, it can't be by performance that we hold on. It is he must hold on to me and drag me along by grace. Abram now standing in the land is no different than us. Surely he is probing the questions for himself. What land is this? What offspring will I have? My wife is still barren. And again, you might be like, well, it's only been two verses, not very long time. Oh, there's more time in there. My wife is still barren. The Canaanites are in the land. How will I have a great name when I have no son or no child and I, and I have no land to stand in? I want to conclude with you just now with the parallelism to how God comforts Abram is the same love in how he comforts you and I. We would perhaps at this moment say the same thing. Lord, help my unbelief. You see, it is precisely here, and I wish to encourage you with this. It is precisely in the point of faith's frustration where God appears to Abram for a second time. I could end right there. I won't. You know me. But right there, just consider the timing of that and let that nourish your soul. It is at point break where God appears to Abram a second time. Why? Because he cares for you. Notice that as we end quickly here, um, I'll simply just introduce to verse 7. Well, notice the notation again. The, please receive the weight of verse 6. At that time, as he's standing in Shechem, at the oaks and the shrines of the Canaanite gods, 
And at that time when he was there, the Canaanites were in the land. And at Faith's most frustrated point, verse 7, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I pause there because we must, beloved, we must note this Lord's Day by what manner God comforts us. The manner with which God comforts us is the manner with which he here comforts Abram. That is, in our seasons of frustration, disappointment, anxiety and weariness of faith. The Lord appears and speaks to us through his word. It is his word that provides the comforts that we need. He speaks his word to Abram. In Abram's response to the words of encouragement and promise, flourish forward to build a shrine right then and there in promise. God is going to give me this land. How can you be so certain? Because he said it. That is, as I end, just consider that, you see, if you are frustrated in faith's journey now, holding on and feeling fragile and a bit brittle, don't let your faith ascend and rise due to circumstances, because you know circumstances can only do one thing, and that is change. Canaanites didn't run out of the land. God spoke. And that is what comforted Abram in his time of difficulty. You see, God, through his word, stretches forth his hand as it is, if you can hear my voice right now, God stretches forth his hand to help us in the hearing of his word. I conclude with Calvin's comment, saying the bare word is of no consolation to the flesh. You can hear it on Lord's Day, you cannot hear it on Lord's Day. It may appear to be something, it is not gonna appear to be much of anything. Bare word is of no consolation to the flesh. But faith has a different taste. The property of which is to hold all the senses bound by reverence to that word spoken. So much so that a single promise of God is more than sufficient to sustain.
Let us pray. Father, we behold glorious things in your word. And yet, our faith being fragile, weak and brittle often, set about by weaknesses of the flesh, of the world, and of the devil, we often fail to hear its promise and to receive and rest upon it sufficiently, whereby our faith will be nourished to health. A faith that ascends and rests upon Jesus Christ, once again being renewed and energized and mobilized for a life of obedience. So I ask on behalf of those gathered here in this auditorium, this Lord's Day, that those hearing the word of the Lord, that you speak to us in the preaching, and their words of comfort that give us a balm that we need, or, or continue the wind in our sails to push us on for a life of endurance, for all of the varied places by providence that those who are gathered here have experienced, I just pray that you would provide the beautiful, the true, and the good that is in your word to our lives. That we would believe it. That we would rest upon it. And we'd be moved for lives of greater obedience and joy because of it. For truly it is your promise that provides.